Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We begin reading in verse 19 and read on to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> so again, just a reminder, this is the uh, not a Christmas sermon this week. Uh, next week we'll get into some Christmassy themes. Um, but uh, this was the last part of uh, the book of Hebrews that is sort of the dividing line between uh, all of his argument thus far and then what we'll get into in Hebrews 11 with the faith chapter uh, beginning in January. So bear with me one more week without Christmas and then uh, hopefully we can celebrate next week and go from there. But uh, hopefully the songs have ministered to you and it puts you in the mood. Uh, but I, I wanted to finish this one because it's such a serious text and, and one that we ought to take to heart, not just this day, but, but every day of our lives. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray together. Father, again, we ask for your help in not only understanding the Word of God as it has been written and preserved for us, but also in believing it and holding on to it and, and persevering in the faith that was handed down 
to our fathers and has now been received by us as well. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us in the inner man to know Christ, to, to love the ways of God, and to walk in the path that you've laid out for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. For the last few years, there have been uh, a number of underwater archaeologists who have been trying to find Cortez's long-abandoned fleet of ships. If you remember, uh, most leadership books today will quote something of uh, what Cortez did back in the year 1519. He had sailed, uh, I think, from Cuba to Veracruz, Mexico, with 11 ships and 500 men. His goal was to take out the Aztec Empire and to take control of that part of the new world. And if you remember, what uh, we're often told is that in order to ensure that his men did not turn back in the midst of the fiercest of battles, uh, that he set all the ships on fire, not allowing them to return home. So they only had the choice of going forward. And, and, and we know that there's truth uh, in much of that, but the, uh, how, what he did is not exactly for sure. The earliest historians never said that he burned the ships but rather that he scuttled them. He, he caused all of them to uh, be beached onto the ground so that they couldn't be used. But later on, some more uh, uh, myth came along with it to burn the ship. So now these men are, are, are searching underwater to see what really happened. Uh, the hard part is, under the waters of the Gulf of Mexico hundreds of years later, there's not a whole lot left, so I'm not sure what they're going to be able to find. But what we do know for sure is this that Cortez, because of the actions that he took, all of his men did in fact go forward and they easily took out the Aztec Empire and they later ended up enslaving most of the indigenous peoples, destroying all their temples and, and much of their culture. In other words, he didn't really give them a choice. Uh, just like he burned the ships, if you will, he burned everything else in their society, not giving them a choice, but basically saying, you have to go forward, you cannot turn back. Clearly, Cortez, as a conqueror, had a different mindset than that of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. Uh, their goal was not to go into a civilization and burn everything that they had, to force them to accept Christianity, but rather to continue to preach the gospel of freedom that frees you from the bondage of your chains, that continues to show you a way forward, a, a gospel of hope through the building of churches rather than constantly destroying every other temple that's around. So the writer of Hebrews has been the main argument all along for the last number of chapters. He's trying to convince them not to turn back. He doesn't try to uh, uh, hurt them or punish them in some way, but merely tries to help them to see how Christ is so much better than anything that they had before. And so he's convincing them of their need to continue to hold on tightly to Christ and not to go back to the shadows, not to go back to the sacrifices, not to go back to all these things they once knew. Uh, again, the author of Hebrews has heard of some who have shrunk back from Christ. And he says, and now are destroyed. And so his, his main warning to them, again, this is the fourth warning he gives in the book of Hebrews. And it's not the last one. He'll give one more in Hebrews chapter 12. So this is an ongoing dilemma that's facing the church at that time. Again, it's just the beginning of a persecution that's taking place against Christians. And for some reason, it's not taking place against the Jews. So many are tempted to turn from Christianity back to Judaism because it was seemingly safer. And so in this last warning, once again, he's telling them, do not walk away from Christ. 
Now, we must always keep in mind that these warning passages are not written for those who have walked away, but rather who are they written to? They're written to us who have not walked away and yet who are under a very grave warning not to follow in that same path. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you have trusted in Christ with a genuine and true faith, as he says in here, sprinkled our hearts with a pure conscience through the blood of Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. It cannot happen. However, you have known some, and I'm sure most of us have experienced this before in the life of the church. There have always been false professors in the church, and there always will be. Those who have started off seemingly well, just like the parable of the sower, they confess faith in Christ, but then for one reason or another, they have walked away, usually because Christ is not what they thought he was, or it became too hard, too difficult to walk in that straight and narrow path, and so eventually they walked away, or they shrunk back, as the writer of Hebrews says. So here, the, the author is seeking to give us this warning again to make sure that we are not asleep in our faith, that we are not easily led astray by those who have already walked away and who want to lead us in the same direction. Uh, and so he begins in verse 26 through 31, speaking of those who have willfully sinned against the Lord without any sense of repentance, even with the knowledge that they have. Now, it's very important that I explain this to you. He's not saying, and this is what many people have interpreted him as saying, he's not saying that it's impossible uh, to, to be restored if someone has sinned the same sin on a number of occasions. Make sure you understand that first and foremost. He's not saying that if you have sinned and fallen into the same sin and yet are seeking to repent that you cannot be restored to the faith. He's not saying that. Here he's referring to those who have sinned in spite of the grace of God that can be found in Christ Jesus and have done so in such a willful manner that they have broken the covenant altogether. I'll give an example. In Numbers chapter 5, verse 30, Moses refers to this, this type of sin for which there is no sacrifice available. Uh, he says they've done this type of sin with a high hand against God. And then immediately he gives an example of that in the, in, the, in the following paragraph. He refers to this man who goes out purposely to pick up sticks on the Sabbath day in broad view of everyone, basically slighting the covenant of God. If you remember, the Sabbath was the sign of the Old Testament covenant that they were not to do this work so that they could worship God on this day, give the glory and remember all that God has done for them on this particular day. But this guy, while everyone else is worshiping, they can see him all going around and doing this work instead, completely ignoring everything that God has just said. Uh, we see this again and again. Uh, most of the time that God immediately brings judgment upon a man or a woman is right after he has renewed the covenant with them. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? Right after God renews this covenant, they, they sin against the Lord. Same thing happens with Uzzah and uh, uh, touching the ark of the Lord and, and, and Nadab and Abihu uh, offering uh, profane fire before the Lord. Every time it comes right after this renewal of the covenant, somehow they do something willfully against the covenant of God. And he says there is no sacrifice available for those. But notice in verse 28 of our text, the author describes the rejection of the law of Moses in this way. He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy 
on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that he's, this time he's referring back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you remember in that particular section, uh, some people have witnessed that a man has begun to worship other gods. He's turned away from the one true God and has begun to worship idols. In this case, worshiping demons, it says. And immediately they tell him that on the, on the, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, they're, they're to stone the man to death. In the same way that they were to stone the man who had broken the Sabbath to death. Again, this is not uh, just someone who just has happened to fall into sin and then seeks to repent of it later, but rather one who willfully disregards everything that God has just said and, and, and chooses to break the covenant of God. No matter what people try to tell you today, and they will tell you this often, a lot of people in our culture today will tell you there really is no difference between sin. All sin is alike, and it's all equal in God's sight. That's not true. It's, it's simply not true. God does distinguish between what we would refer to as sins of ignorance, sins of passion, and then high-handed sins. Uh, most of us uh, easily commit sins of ignorance. Many of us have committed sins of passion, but to commit a high-handed sin is one that is purposely done to slight the covenant of God. It's someone who has changed their mind altogether about the covenant. So if, if I can tell you again, if you're, if you're in any way afraid that you've already committed this sin, it's something that you have to willfully want to do to break God's covenant. Not because it's a sin of passion, but because you think, I know better than God. I don't care what he says. I'm going to do it anyway. It's my way, not God's way. You see, there's a, there's a huge difference in this type of sin. Uh, I'll give an example. Um, so, for instance, uh, there are many people who struggle with some form of sexual immorality. They seek to repent of the sin once they've committed or thought it or whatever it is. There's a big difference between someone who has fallen into sexual immorality and one who continues to walk in and says, I don't care what God says. It's the same thing with homosexual sin. You see, I think uh, the church has not done a good job of explaining exactly how serious some sins are in that regard. But it's not that someone who struggles with homosexuality is necessarily a much worse person than any other person who struggles with any other form of sexual immorality. But it's when that person says, I no longer care what God says. I'm going to live the way I want to live, regardless of God's law. There's a big difference between those two things. And, and I have to say, if anyone here struggles with any type of sexual sin whatsoever, the, the church never excommunicates someone for struggling. They excommunicate someone for saying, I don't care what God says. I'm going to live the way I want to. I don't care if, if, uh, if, if the church says this, I love so-and-so, I'm going to be with whoever I want. There's a difference. It's always the pride that's associated with the sin. Anyone who struggles with sin and knows it's sin and confesses that sin, even though they haven't yet overcome that sin, they're not, they're not damned to hell. You understand that? It doesn't matter whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin. It's the person who says, I don't care what God says anymore. And that's what's going on here. In verse 29, he's comparing then the rejection of the law of Moses to the rejection of the gospel of Christ. Look there in verse 29. He says, how much worse punishment do you think then will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Now that's the strongest language you will ever find in the scripture for someone who has sinned in any way. Look at that again. He says he has trampled the Son of God under his feet, has profaned the blood of the covenant, 
and has outraged the Holy Spirit. You know, we normally think of grieving the Holy Spirit as making him sad, you know, uh, but actually the, the word as it's used in the Greek has both the combination of sadness and anger. We have a, an ability to anger the Holy Spirit because of our sin, but in this particular case, he's outraged because of someone's take on the covenant as it has been given. Again, let me give you an example. Uh, perhaps many of you who grew up, who, who have been in the Christian faith for a long time, especially in the 80s and 90s, would be familiar with the singer by the name of Ray Bolts. Remember that name? You don't hear him too often anymore these days, but Ray Bolts was the one who wrote the song Watch the Lamb and, and Thank You for Giving to the Lord. Great songs. Um, I remember I actually, uh, my first profession of faith in a public manner came after listening to the song Watch the Lamb. And it really did have a big impact on me. But um, in the 90s, he, he, he sang another song. Uh, the words go like this. He says, does, he's, he's asking in the midst of his sin, does, does Christ still feel the nails every time I fail? Does he hear the crowd cry crucify all over again? Am I causing him pain? Then I know I've got to change, for I just can't bear the thought of hurting him. At that time, Raybolt still was somehow under the influence of the Spirit convicting him. He felt a sense of that conviction, realized he needed to confess his sin and to change. Ten years later, he gives up on that fight altogether and proudly proclaims his homosexuality and proudly disagrees with everything that God has ever said, divorces his wife, moves in with his lover, and now instead of singing songs like Watch the Lamb, his most recent song was, Don't Tell Me Who to Love. I'm sure his new so-called church would disagree with me, but the same man who was so concerned about hurting Christ 10 years ago is now trampling the Son of God underfoot because he has rejected the covenant of God. He has rejected the grace of God that can be given to a sinner who is struggling in his sin, who needs hope, and yet he said, I don't need hope anymore. I don't need grace anymore. I'm going to live the way I want. I've redefined everything. That's what's happening uh, in a sinner who has rejected the covenant, has rejected the grace of God that can be found. And basically what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, if you thought it was bad in the Old Testament when they rejected the law of Moses, what makes you think it's going to be any better for those who reject the grace of God that can be found in Christ Jesus? You're trampling underfoot the Son of God by saying that His grace no longer applies to me. There's no hope for me in the gospel. It can't be found. But it's not, again, I want to reiterate, it's not just proud homosexuals that fall into this camp. There are proud sinners of every stripe. In the church outside the church that have walked away from God immediately saying, you know what, I've tried. I've tried to live this way, and I can't do it. It's just too hard. It's too difficult. I can't keep on the straight and narrow path. It must not be the right way. There must be another way. There must be an easier way, a wider way to get into heaven than the way that the Scriptures, I thought, had taught. I, I, I don't know how else to say it to you, but no one else seems to tell us the truth half the time. Christianity's not easy. It never has been. It never will be. It's not a walk in the park. Why? Because we are prone to sin. We stumble easily. Our hearts so easily grow hard 
And we have to do battle against our own flesh every day of our lives. If we don't, well, then we're naturally going to go into the same camp as these others who have walked away from Christ. Uh, literally, the writer of Hebrews will say in, in the following chapters, he says, that we're to strive for holiness. He says, for without it, no one will see the Lord. No one. But again, you're going to have many people today who are saying, well, the gospel's so... It's, we're living in a day of grace. It's all grace. Don't, don't worry about your sin. Don't worry about repentance. Don't worry about anything that's ever happened before. Um, but they're not telling you the truth. Uh, Christianity, it's a fight. It's a race. Think about how Paul describes all these things. He's fighting. He's running. He's striving to have a, a close relationship with God. He's not just saying, oh, grace, grace. It's all grace. He's not saying that. What he is saying to us in this chapter is that the Holy Spirit, as long as the Holy Spirit is still bringing conviction to us because of, 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 of the truth of our own wickedness, there's hope for us, you see. When we begin to completely ignore what the Holy Spirit is saying to us when we're convicted of our sin, that's when it's a problem. That's when it's a, a major issue because we no longer are sensitive at all to the work of the Holy Spirit. He's constantly convicting the world of sin, of truth, the judgment to come, but yet there comes a point where they believe there is no more judgment. There is no more accountability. There's no sense of what sin is. We're all free now in, in the gospel. But that's not true. The gospel frees us from our sin. It doesn't free us to live the way we want. So in verses 26 and 27, the author is saying that if we deliberately move forward with our sin, in other words, we're no longer listening to the Holy Spirit, we're calling good that which is evil, calling evil that which is good. He says, if that's the case, he says, there is no more sacrifice left for us because we have trampled the blood of Christ. He says, instead, there's only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume all of God's enemies. Now, again, most people today will tell me, I've heard a number of people tell me, so glad that you don't preach fire and brimstone sermons. So glad that that's no longer, you know, the error of the church today. Um, somehow we think that we, we the, the previous generations had totally gotten it wrong and, and that, that, that now we only preach the grace. It's just not true, guys. We have been in an age of grace since the Garden of Eden. That's true. Every moment of our lives, we are living under the grace of God because he doesn't immediately met out punishment to us because of our sins. What we deserve, we don't get. Every person, not just the believer, but the unbeliever, we're, we're in an age of grace, yes. But there also is a judgment that is sure to come and fire that's sure to fall upon anyone who rejects the grace of God. It's always been that way and always will be, and that's why as a preacher, I can't just preach the grace of God. I have to preach the fire and the brimstone too because it still applies to anyone who rejects the grace of God. And it's so hard because I've seen people. I mean, I've been in the ministry for you know a few decades now. And I've seen people that I have loved and, and watched and, and then seen them walk away from the church. I can't not give you the warnings. There will be some here, potentially, that will walk away from the church, will walk away from Christ because you've bought into some other theology that isn't true. He says, if we turn away from Christ, we ignore the spirit of Christ who's seeking to convict us of our sin. What else is there but fire and judgment? There's nothing else left. Nothing. 
So the author ends his warning in verse 30 and 31 by quoting from the passage that David read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Again, what do you think of that song? That, that song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32. Isn't that a great one? Commit that one to memory, sing that at Christmas time. <laughs> Here, here's what he's saying in the song. He's saying, he, he's teaching, so again, keep in mind, the old generation has already passed. They've died in the wilderness because of their sin, because of the judgment of God. A new generation has come. He's teaching this new generation what they're to believe and what they're to do. And it, so he's reminding them of how God saved them out of Egypt through such great wonders and powers. Love them with an everlasting love. Bless them in so many ways beyond belief. And then as a result, what did Israel do? She grew fat. She grew fat and proud and rejected the God who had made her and who had saved her and began to worship demons instead. And he says, what do you think my response to that was? I was enraged. You, you do realize God is not just a God of grace, God of vengeance as well. He says very specifically to them in that passage, vengeance is mine and I will repay. All those who have rejected the covenant, all those who have despised the grace that I've given to them, all the blessings that I've given to them. Moses then says to the new generation, the Lord will judge his people. Remember that, or else the same thing will happen to you that happened to the first generation who died in the wilderness. If you reject the covenant of grace, there's nothing left but judgment. And so he's warning them of that. Now, now that I've said all that to you, I, I am also very glad to tell you <laughs> that afterwards he transitions then and gives them some comfort. Uh, after giving all this serious warning, he tells them to look back on all that God has already done in and through them and then reminds them what still lays ahead for them, for those who walk with Christ. And so if you look in verses 32 and 34, the author reminds them of all those previous struggles that God has brought them through, all their sufferings, even their persecutions. Uh, literally, he says, some of them were literally reviled by the crowds in the same way that Jesus was. They were taunted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, do you remember that? Do you remember when you stood so boldly for the Lord and you were persecuted as a result? He says, some of you were thrown into prison and were under, in chains for however long it was. And he says, and, and some of you went to go visit them. You ministered to them. You identified with those who were suffering and those who were persecuted in the faith. And because of that, some of you lost your own property as a result. And he says, you didn't bemoan that. Yeah, you rejoiced in the fact that they took away your property. Who rejoices when people have their property stolen? Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? About all those, what blessing really is? He says, blessed are those when people persecute you and say all sorts of evil things about you. He says, rejoice and be glad. Literally, the Christians here were rejoicing when their property was stolen. They were rejoicing when they were thrown into prison. They were singing songs like the Apostle Paul when they were suffering for the sake of Christ. He says, how then could you possibly think about turning away from Christ after all that he's brought you through? Verses 35 through 39, he pleads with them, don't throw away your confidence. Persevere in the faith that you might receive that which was promised to you from the beginning. For God will not be pleased with those who turn away from him. God will not be pleased with those who shrink back. But again, he seeks to comfort them. He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but rather we are those who have faith and preserve 
our souls. That's, that's the gist of the overall argument that he's making. Don't turn back, but persevere in your faith in Christ. So then how do you do that? That's what the first section of this passage is about in verses 19 through 25. And now, finally, I have three points for you. You thought I was just rambling today, and it's all you thought. His points are actually in the beginning, and then later on he's elaborating on those points. But in verses 19 through 25, he's giving them three things to hold on to in order that they might persevere in their faith and in the church. He says, first of all, we need to hold on to our confidence in Christ. Second, we need to hold on to our confession of faith or our confession of hope, as he calls it. And third, we need to hold on to the communion of the saints. All three have to be held at the same time. First, he says, we need to hold on to our confidence in Christ. He says in verses 19 following, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, then, if you skip down to verse 22, then let us draw near with a true heart in full confidence or assurance of faith. Again, his assumption is that these people have already trusted in Christ. These people have not trusted in their own good works, but rather they have trusted in the perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and they have trusted in the perfect obedience of Christ that they might be able to enter into the very presence of Christ, in the presence of God based upon Christ exchanging his righteousness for their sin and their sin falling upon him and he dying in their place. He says, that was your confidence from the very beginning. It was never based upon yourself. It was always based upon Christ. Hold on to that confidence that you have in Christ. That same statement that Paul says that the reason why Jesus came into the world was to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I am the chief. Our confidence has never been based upon us. It has always been based upon Christ, the righteous one. And I think any true understanding of the gospel, usually you can tell it pretty quickly with people, especially when we do interviews for sessions. If there's any sense of someone boasting at all of them trying to be good, I'm like, oh, you don't get it at all. You don't get it. You're not good. You're evil. The Scripture says very plainly, you're evil. The only way you will ever get into heaven is based upon the righteousness of Christ. That's it. Hold on to the confidence that you have in Christ because that is the only way we are ever reconciled to God. It's the only way we ever have fellowship with God. It always comes down to a simple trust and faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. It's always the same. It's never changed. Generation after generation, if, if anyone is going to walk with Christ, it has to be based upon a simple trust and confidence in Christ. It's hard to believe that anyone ever would want to throw that away. In fact, I don't think anyone would if they ever had it. But those who don't really know what they have those who don't really truly trust in Christ, they don't really think that confidence is worth all that much, and so they throw it away in looking for something else. Reminds me of a, of a, a real event that happened in 1830. A, a man by the name of George Wilson was sentenced to death for murder in Philadelphia. And uh, right before Andrew Jackson was about to finish his term as president, he decided to grant the man a pardon, George Wilson. Um, the problem was when the jailer went to go present the pardon to him, he didn't want it. He refused to be pardoned. The sheriff didn't know what to do. <laughs> he 
He's like, uh, well, you're supposed to be pardoned, but you're not leaving. And uh, so what, what, what's the next step here? It actually goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. A man who refuses to be pardoned. And uh, Chief Justice Marshall, who was a, a Christian, the, the first, uh, uh, one of the first, I think he was the first uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice. He said this of, of, of the matter. He says, a pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated, it's hardly to be supposed that one under sentence of death would refuse to accept such a pardon, but if it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must hang, and he was hanged. And so the matter was settled. But literally, anyone who throws away their confidence in Christ is throwing away a pardon and saying, no, I'm, I'm going to take my chances. What else is left but judgment? Nothing left, you see. No true Christian would ever throw away such a confidence. But only one who had come so close to the gospel, but yet not had fully believed it. They throw it away because to them it's just a piece of paper. That's it. Nothing more. Then second, he says, let us hold on to our confession of hope or our confession of faith. Technically, the author says confession of hope in verse 23. He says, let us, let us hold on to that confession without wavering for he who promised is Faithful, but we see those two words are, are used interchangeably throughout Scripture. In fact, in the next chapter, he's going to say that faith is the substance of things hoped for. Right? Uh, hope is, is is firmly believing in these things and holding on to them throughout time into the future. That we don't throw that away either. Holding on to a confession again, it's a strong conviction of the truth of what Scripture actually teaches us. That not only are we justified in God's sight, but there's more to it than that. Again, I think that's the hard part in our culture today. I think most people have been taught about the gospel and the justification, but they aren't clearly taught about sanctification. In other words, they're believing in Christ that God can give them their ticket to heaven, but they don't believe that Christ can actually change them. And that, that is the core of what we're fighting about right now with the homosexual debates and a lot of these other debates that are going on. You have to understand, when I say I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I don't believe merely that he has done something for me in the past or that he's going to do something for me in the future, but that he's doing something in me now. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe the gospel. You have not held to your confession that we said that we believed at first. And that's what's going on. Even in our denomination, there's some in our denomination who basically says, I, I know that God can do this, I know he can do that, but he, he can't do this in my life. And that's not the gospel. They're throwing away their, their, their confession. And there comes a time, I think, uh, in which false professors who at one time said they believe things will change. They'll no longer hold those truths. So, again, all of us, hopefully, are growing up in our, not just our actions, but in what we believe as well. I think the more we walk with Christ, we'll find that a lot of things that we believed about him at first weren't, right, weren't quite true. Have you noticed that? You, you read the scripture and, and all of a sudden you're like, huh. I thought that was true of him, but it's, it's not. I didn't really know the Scripture that well. That's normal. That's what's supposed to happen. But how does that work? Well, my thoughts were wrong. Scripture's right, right? The person who has thrown away their confession says, my thoughts are right. The Scripture's wrong. And therefore, the Scripture must not mean what it says, so I'm going to change it. It's going to say something else instead. And that's, that's what's happening in our culture today. I can't tell you. I mean, I'm having conversations with people who have very, 
who have, who have made every single word mean something else than what it really means in order to continue to keep their confidence in Christ, they have to throw away their confession. You see, it has to be both. You have to have confidence in Christ and confidence in the confession of what the Scripture teaches about Christ. You can't make a Christ of your own making. You can't make him reflect your own image rather than the image that he's given unto us in Scripture. The writer of Hebrews is warning us near the end of the epistle, do not be led astray by these diverse and strange teachings. There'll be people who say they have confidence in Christ, but they're not holding to the confession of faith that's taught to us in Scripture. Their confidence is not in the truth of Scripture, but rather in something of their own making. Then finally, in addition to holding on to our confidence in Christ and our confession of faith, we're to hold on to the communion of saints. And I think that even more than the previous two is certainly uh, a point that is uh, disagreed on by many. Verses 24 and 25, if you look there with me in the text, the author of Hebrews says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, out of fear of persecution and suffering, many of them had stopped going to church. They just didn't want to go because it was such a place of threat. Anyone who went to church regularly, they were marked. They were known. And then they potentially would be thrown in prison themselves. So there's this, there's this fear. There's this concern. And so he says, you need to gather together to encourage one another. And he says, to stir up one another. Uh, literally, uh, the word in the Greek originally means to exasperate one another. But I don't think that's what he means because we do that naturally. We shouldn't be commanded to do that. But rather to stimulate one another to something good primarily to persevere. I mean, how many times have you gone about your day in the world and, and you see all these things that seem to contradict everything that you believe and, and people are disagreeing with everything you say and they're undermining your faith? You need to have people around you who are saying, no, brother, keep going. This has been the same faith that we have believed. It's been the same faith that we have held for generation after generation after generation. I don't care what the culture is telling you. It's lies. We're moving forward with the simple faith in Christ and what he has taught us. The church, as weak as it is, and as sinful as it can be, it's where we learn to love the Lord more than any other place. It's where we learn to sing and to pray and to grow in love, not only with God, for God, but for each other. Martin Luther once confided in a friend saying, at home in my own house there's no warmth in me, no vigor. But in the church when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. If you haven't experienced that, I feel sorry for you. It really is. Even as a pastor who thinks he knows a lot of things, it's such a blessing to be around people who believe. We lived in Connecticut <laughs> For about six years and I could tell you the church was the only place where anybody believed and it was it was a blessing just to be around people who believed to tell you once again you're not as crazy as you think you are it's true your faith is in Christ but you know Satan loves to pick us off one by one we're together it's much less likely for that to happen 
Um, I had read in a, a commentary this week, one of the commentators was talking about a, um, a documentary on the Navy SEALs and on their training. And I, I thought it was a great illustration. Um, he was saying that, um, you know, even, or, even to be considered to be a, a SEAL, you have to pass that, that first week or two. It's called Hell Week, where they pretty much subject you to every possible form of physical suffering that is available to the human body. They deprive you of sleep. On average, they get about two hours of sleep per day. They deprive them of food. They deprive them of any sense of comfort. <laughs> so they take them in the water and subject them in ice cold water for hours at a time. And then they, they, they w without torturing you in the physical sense uh, completely, they certainly torture you mentally again and again and again. And there's no sense of relief. Apparently there's a bell in the middle of the camp. To put it into it, all you have to do is get up and go ring that bell and your suffering's over. You can go home, you can get in your bed, and you can eat a nice hot meal and say, I'm done, done with all of it. But what's interesting is that every time a man is tempted to get up and to ring that bell, oh, I forgot to tell you that all of the trainers are constantly saying, just quit, you're never gonna make it. You're never gonna do it, you can't do it. Think of Satan, right? Using the role of Satan, they're constantly saying, can't do it, you might as well just quit, you're just a wussy, you're not a real man, You'll never make it. But the second any one of them tries to get up and to ring that bell, every other one of the men say, don't do it. Don't do it, brother. Look at all that you've been through. All that you've suffered through. And at the end of it, you will have the highest ranking military achievement that you could ever, see, ever achieve. You'll be a Navy SEAL. Don't quit. Persevere. And you see the camp just come together to rally. That's what the church is for, you see. All of us will struggle with different types of sin, different times. All of us will at times feel like, I will never overcome. I will never gain ground. It's not true. It's not true. The church has been given to us for this very purpose to lift us up, to edify us, to remind us of the truth of the gospel that can change us inwardly as well as outwardly, that there's hope for us in the gospel of Jesus. In a very real way, the church does do this if we let it. Just a minute, we're going to read, uh, sing our final hymn, uh, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. It's not in our hymn book, but it's uh, one that I wanted to add for us to sing this morning. It's originally of Indian origin. Uh, very few hymns uh, are come from India, uh, but this one is actually, the tune is called Assam, which is the, the name of a city in India from which uh, uh, the story came. It was about 150 years ago. There was a great revival in, in the country of Wales, and as a result, many missionaries started going to northeast India uh, to reach out to the people there who had never heard the gospel before. Where one particular Welsh missionary, they don't know his name now, had converted the first Indian man and his family to the gospel in that particular village. And that man's faith was contagious, that first Indian who had come to faith in Christ. And immediately, 20, 30, 40 other people started professing faith in Christ. And this really angered uh, the chief of the tribe. And so he gathered all of them together and basically told that one man to renounce his faith or that he would be executed. 
And it's in the context of his response to that that these simple words that are repetitive in our hymn that we have today, the man said something similar to this, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. If you truly trust in Christ, that will be your mentality. Nothing will hinder you from persevering in your faith in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the warning is given because there's so many that don't end what they started because they did not truly trust in Christ. If you trust in Christ, he's everything. The world is nothing, and we have hope. Not only for now, in this world, but in the world to come as well. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us. We all sinful, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. We pray, Father, that you would help us in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our foolishness, in the midst of our great temptation, that we so easily listen to the lies of the devil, so easily fall into the, the, the lessons of this world. and All of it, it, it tries to teach us that our faith is a sham, that the truth that we've held to for so long has, has been wrong, and that we need to update that faith based upon what the world is saying to us. Lord, help us to hold on to the truth as it is. Help us to hold on to Christ. Help us to hold on to that original confession of faith in Him. And Lord, help us to hold on to the church of Jesus Christ. What a blessing she is to us. We ask all these things.